Welcome to the post-apocalyptic social club. Today we're joined by George, Joe and myself, Jose. Uh, do you guys want to say hi? Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, today we're um, going to be reviewing a book that's going to form part of a series by Grace Blakely. Um, the book is Futures of Socialism. And in this particular episode, we're going to be uh, reviewing the chapter by... Gargi Bacharaya, um, where she wrote The Five Bad Habits of Nearly Successful Political Projects. Um, for a bit of context, the, the book um, written by Grace Blakely. Grace Blakely is a British economics and political commentator. Uh, she currently writes for Tribune, as well as um, hosts a podcast called A World to Win. Um, the book was published in September this year. And the frame of it is, you know, after the 2019 general election, um, the ensuing pandemic and the post-Corbyn era. And it kind of echoes and resonates a book that was written by James Curran in sort of similar circumstances with, with regards to sort of political upheaval, where in 1984 he wrote this book, Future to the Left, or Future of the Left, um, just after the win of Thatcher and the loss of Labour, where a lot of key um, Labour thinkers like Tony Benn, um, Philip Cohen, Stuart Hall, obviously and James Cohen, as well as other key thinkers, sort of looked at interrogating the current foundations and limits of socialism, obviously the path to take for, you know, the eventual um, path to power. Um, this particular chapter is written by Gargi Bhattacharya, hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, who's a professor of sociology at the University of London. Uh, typically, recent, her research interests are around race, racism, sexuality, the war and terror, globalisation and austerity. Um, before we dive into it, have you two got any initial um, ideas around the text, um, any interpretations? Just yeah, just to say that I didn't uh, I didn't realize that it was a kind of um, yeah similar similar to the nineteen eighty four sort of post socialist moment. Oh, that's quite interesting, and that um, even without that knowledge, I thought that you know it was useful useful to look back on these uh, sorts of things and create better strategies for the future. Hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Like, um, it is, obviously we've got, you know, four four years, is it four or five years to the next election? Um, anywho, um, it's just, it's a very interesting book throughout, if we split into two sections, foundations and futures, and it's just really, it's kind of like a comprehensive um, anthology 
for anybody that wants to know, okay, where's the, where's, what's the current situation, what's the history, where are the limits and where are the potential avenues? Um, it's quite like a nice little um, book for someone who potentially you know, wants to either further the knowledge or find sort of jumping points within their own knowledge. Um, but no, this particular chapter, I don't know how you guys found it, but I, I found it quite interesting how um, she's focused on these sort of five habits and any, you know, a potential um, framing of, you know, the overall framing of this chapter is, can we make new habits and, you know, what potentially are they? So I was just wondering if I, I was just going to start by sort of saying this statement on the first page and then obviously sort of diving, diving into the five habits and what you uh, what you two think about them. So she writes that one problem is that it seems that it seems to frame the conversation as a problem to be solved for and through instrumental means. At worst, it sounds no more than a plan to see something, the state perhaps, an election maybe, and to postpone all progress until this capture has taken place. What do you two think about that? Yeah, so I've got somewhat I maybe I've misunderstood it, but I've got somewhat beef with that if that is in reference to an analysis, analysis of the Corbyn project. Because, as you know, the Corbyn project was, it was based on an idea of community organising, I think, and, and not just parliamentary politics, but a social movement and how can you marry a social movement with parliamentary politics. So, you know, it was probably the least the least like a um, an electioneering project mm. any other elections that we've had since probably 1983 um, yeah yeah no I mean like to just sort of build on that I mean I I disagree with kind of the there's been a tendency in the sort of sort of I guess like post 2015 16 left with sort of the rise of Bernie Sanders in the US um, and uh, maybe sort of Mélenchon in France and Corbyn in the UK to focus maybe too much on electioneering. But at the same time, like, as George says, there was there was a focus on quite a few different sort of aspects of that, of the, I suppose, maybe not Corbyn himself, but of the movement that surrounded the Labour Party at the time. Um, uh, and I think the instrumentalism is... Did she say instrumentalism? That's the yeah, essentially yeah, through instrumental yeah. means, and she goes on to talk about instrumentalism. So it's 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 a tricky um, thing because there is you know there's the, socialism isn't just the idea that you know you have a welfare state and that's socialism. You know it's not just that you've got you know a well-funded NHS and that's socialism, or that you've got you know various measures in place to protect people so the concept of socialism is or even like sort of radical social democracy is more public ownership um and um a stronger engagement of the public with its own productive means it's not about even redistribution it's about having some influence on the mechanisms which produce society um right 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 and um, how do you sorry no, I was just going to say is that the, the, the first point that she goes into is that perhaps we were overly fascinated on the mainstream media 
Uh, he says that for others, it chimes with a political training that focuses almost exclusively on controlling the narrative. But that controlling the narrative is precisely a means to which you accomplish that definition of socialism right there. Like, how do you expect to increase public ownership and state power and whatever without? If, if your means to get there is parliamentary socialism, that means you must go through an election, which means you must have a media strategy. There's yeah. no way to do it. So um, that instrumental view, I think, is somewhat necessary. It's just Completely. the means to accomplish socialism. And like this is a critique of even, uh, say, the Bolsheviks when they took power was they had big ideas, um, but not a lot of instrumentality. And that's why a lot of things did descend into um, chaos, um, certainly in the years following the Civil War. Um, and I think having a degree of instrumentality is important. It's not the, it's, it, it, you know, having just a strong state doesn't equal socialism, and we shouldn't confuse the two, but having an understanding of electioneering and power um, are very important to, and technocracy are important to any struggle to improve the quality of lives of people. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that this writer doesn't um, maybe agree with that, but I do find that some of the points are almost um, uh, devoid of material content. Yeah, I mean, so after that very quote, she says, socialism must be more about more than this, surely. Perhaps we might park our concerns about the media until we have worked out what might be required for us all to stay alive in this next period future of socialism might depend more on the second habit than the first and I agree that yeah learning how to survive is more important but if you want socialism to help you do that then you will need to grapple with that question and you will need people thinking and acting and thinking about the question how do you control the narrative so yeah it's it's, it's a means to achieving the end of socialism um, another point there's a quote, I think, a bit further up where she says, socialism is all too often code for winning a first-past-the-post election to sneak in some redistribution without scarring the, scaring the middle ground. So here, if she's talking about the Corbyn project, that is just not what the Corbyn project was about. The Corbyn project was not some kind of third-way Blairite project of redistributing tax revenue to pay for tax credits or something like that. But it was a, it was proposing a kind of 21st century experiment in economic democracy, like a completely different economic model that devolves power to ordinary people. Uh, I can't remember the, the quote from Tony Benn, like ir irreversible shift in power to ordinary people, something like that. So to characterize it as a bit of redistribution I think is misleading if that's what she's referring to. If, if she's just saying this is what the media narrative is or the popular understanding, uh, then maybe I'm wrong. But, um, but if she's referring to the media narrative, then it's up, again, it's up to labor strategists, media strategists, socialist strategists to control that narrative in the media. It's, it has to be an instrumental uh, approach to then formulating what that narrative means that socialism isn't just redistribution that socialism is public ownership and, and, and control and irreversible shifts in power to ordinary people yeah i mean i think she might be a bit sort of 
confused in her sort in her critique like further along on like page 46 near to the end and um, within sort of the fifth habit um she obviously she, she writes like the british left which remains tied to electoral aims has translated this concern into a question of marketing but then but then obviously she frames that her um, question in you know, how can we make new habits and she focuses on this idea of communication control and have the uh, narrative as well as you know the which is this, this second part, latter part, I agree with, but the you know the idea of being able to operationalize the visions that you want to put in place. But I don't know. I just feel like her critique of the media narrative and her proposal of you know creating sort of new media, which I agree with. I don't know. I just feel like it's a bit of a confused critique. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's the Gramscian in potentially all three of us which um says that media is a, a cultural production um is is important to um kind of ge generating a counter uh a counter parad paradigm um and you know or a different worldview um and you need to project that with media um but i i mean yeah it's not just about marketing um and like you know, all of the all of the publications and Tribune or Jacobin or uh, you know wherever else, um, they they aren't going to change the general landscape. I, I I guess you know going back to the point that she raises about um, trying not to scare the middle. I mean, it's it's a weird one because I mean any any genuine form of workers movement is going to require a substantial portion of all workers. Now, I, it, I guess it depends how you define middle, but like you, you're going to need to incorporate, it can't just be, you know, radical leftists who emerged out of the student movement. It's going to have to be, um, you know, a wide mix of a diverse working class, um, um, different sort of, demographics of age race um gender um and geography um so you're gonna have to have the middle you know you have you you do have to do convincing um and you know part of i think the problem with the 2019 manifesto um again i guess they're specifically talking about corbynism so it's mm. worthwhile mentioning that is the complexity of it and i think even people who drafted that said that you know, in retrospect, there was just too much. Like they were throwing every policy they could in there. And any good media campaign, um, no simplicity is, you know, the best argument. And if you can articulate, you know, things like public ownership in as simple as words as possible, that that you know, and that's also emotionally resonant. That's <laughs> that's that's the key objective. They people don't care or need to know about all the intricacies of your detail to begin with um but that's I don't, I don't know you you guys might disagree oh no i fully agree with that and i wonder whether our definitions of socialism is different to the author's definition of socialism mm -hmm. in the in the so there's a few points here i mean i don't know anything about the author so could be completely wrong here add the caveat but um, what if 
houses of a socialism that is, a, is, is, if he doesn't need the media, then therefore it's not that interested in elections. Therefore, how, what is the only other way to achieve it? Is like through some kind of like weird like armed revolution. It's definitely not going to happen. Like I just don't think that's useful to think about those sorts of things. And the to also talked later on about um, this sort of the electorate's growing distrust of, of democracy. So it's like I think maybe this is where I disagree. And yeah, maybe she's talking about a different kind of. Um, different means to getting there but maybe also different goals like not even democratic socialism maybe more of a kind of authoritarian socialism i don't know it's too too short of a text to really gauge where her position is i think because we could just be creating a big straw straw woman yeah <laughs> i i don't yeah i don't want to imply things that aren't yeah. meant at all but there is uh i don't know i just I mean, I get what you mean, but you have to also remember that most, pe most people reading this will be reading it probably in dislocation. So that person's, you know, wider ouvoir. So like, we, got, we have got a sort of, we will be, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, unfair to sort of judge this on its own two feet, essentially. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's, it's without enough content to really be a manifesto, but I think it's framing itself kind of like a manifesto um and i i, I don't know it's i i think more and more i just feel like a conservative materialist when it comes to like kind of objective points of the left um and and i like i like it when clear points are made by by authors which you can genuinely engage with um and i can't fully engage with any of the sentences that, that the author makes mm. Oh yeah, I mean, I think pretty much it's just the author's taken five things that they believe, you know, could be Corbynism, it could be the you know the wider left project, at, you know, historically, because obviously they even mm. the you know the fourth point about you know the great belief that socialism has been done before in Britain, you know, takes us back to the world, you know, the post-war era. It's quite hard to see where the um, you know, where the scale of her critique is. Um, but you'd expect, because the book is sort of referring to the future of socialism, the pandemic, the post-Corbyn era, it would be post-2019 that she's looking into. I, I, do people think that socialism existed after? I mean, people believe there's like social democratic tendencies or the sort of increase of the welfare state. But I don't think most people say that socialism, you know, existed in Britain. Um, Maybe she's probably referring to the Corbyn's going to take us back to the 1970s argument. Yeah. That's often brought out about public ownership. But yeah, I don't think people use that language of we've already had socialism. No. No. I mean, people you know, maybe don't understand what socialism may be. Obviously, they might just see it in, in, in a sort of maybe blunt sense of just, you know, redistribution, um, strong, strong state. Um, safety net, you know, cradle to grave. Um, but, you know, somebody might not know the wider definition of socialism looking at public ownership. You could argue the case that it's like with communism, people sort of liken and see communism as synonymous with what, ha you know, what happened with the fall of the USSR. You know, I mean, it just, it just depends. Like we're generalizing that some people 
um, don't think you know socialism has happened before because it completely depends on what your interpretation of socialism is. I suppose I just take a naturally kind of Marxist interpretation of socialism, which doesn't even really care about redistribution. Like redistribution is not, it, it's something in, you know, the degenerated workers state of the USSR, you know, like under Stalin, maybe redistribution was more of a prerogative, but like generally like uh, sort of Marxian ex economics would argue that it's about seizing or controlling the means of production um redistribution, like you're already part of that process of wealth creation you don't have to yeah participate it's, in it and then have some given to you afterwards because you know like fully involved precisely and that would be a pretty much baseline definition for genuine socialism of some kind of variety um and i don't think any any country can really claim to have succeeded in that um but um and it can't just be the state ownership of it as well like this is a you know there's a difference between nationalization and and socialism um because you can nationalize lots of things but are they actually for the benefit of the public or for the people you know the proletariat um and a lot of the time it won't be it will just be a different form of state capitalism um without a bourgeoisie but with managerial class who end up controlling those levers of power um and i think you can probably say that's what happened to the ussr um and there is a tendency for that to happen if you don't understand both the technocracy and the actual philosophy of a socialist movement on that point about kind of democracy like you can't just have state ownership, it has to kind of be democratic as well. Um, there was a quote here that says, uh, in response, we have tended to return to the view that we have the better ideas and the only hurdle is persuading the electorate to let us try them out. I wonder if this merits more scrutiny. I get the point she's trying to say here. Um, but if you do want to democratise, if you do want the electorate to have their own ideas and, and and act on them, then you will have to persuade them first. Vote for us because we're going to give you power. Like, I'm trying to think of a good way to say this. Like, to give to give the electorate the power to make their own decisions, you have to force them to be free, and that you have to say that you've got the better ideas. And then you've got, you know, you have to persuade them that your idea of democracy is better. Therefore, trust us with the power and then we will give power back to you. Do you know what I mean? There's a bit of an issue there. Um, but that has got to be part of the process, right? You can't, you can't not seize power and then, you know, not, like, there's no other way of doing that. Sorry, I haven't articulated that very well. But, like, no, that's get, the way you mean. No, no, it makes to sense. Get, to get to the point where, that the electorate does have power you have to seize power and then give it to them so there's no way of getting around that problem that you have to persuade the electorate that you've got good ideas because it's the, the, the party machine is small and mm. the population is big so if you I mean, say we're going to empower the population then you, you have to persuade them that economic democracy is worth doing and then you can have 
your actual power in your daily life. Like. Hmm. I mean, I think I think maybe her point might be obviously I don't know. I can't speak on her behalf, but like on the second statement, which she says, you know, too much focus is capturing the state and assuming you know all will be well, will then be well. I think you know how I'd interpret that is obviously. It's hard to tell because obviously the way she's written it, as you've just pointed out then about the whole electoral sort of you can't get there without being part of the electoral aims. But I, I think her point might just be that I think the focus is on if we just need to capture power and everything will be fine, everything will be sorted. We people, you know, we have we have this great idea, um, and if we could just get into power, we can actualize it. Then you know, happy days. But I think what maybe she's trying to do with this piece is say look that's brilliant and all we do need to capture the state um in a sense we do need the power to be able to actualize what we do but you know that isn't the end goal essentially you know not thinking okay once we're in power that's it needs to be like you know a 5 10 15 maybe 20 year vision past that um in a way obviously on the electoral side of things as you argue just then is you need to communicate things because at the start of it she says some stuff about like don't say these certain phrases do say these certain phrases so i think she is talking more about communication and you know being being more not saying simple by the narrative but making things more clear to the electorate um so you're not just assuming that you know you the left is fighting for equality and fairness and justice and then we should assume that's our cloak and everyone should believe us and that's the pedestal we stand on but we need to be able to communicate effectively that vision past just being in power. And another thing she points out is, especially with the 2019 manifesto, is you know there's a lot. There's a, they're having the vision is great, but if you have these lofty ideals but no sort of material way of bringing it back to earth, you know, ideally operationalizing it, maybe being like, look, here's the problem, here's our solution, but you know, here's the nuts and bolts of how we're actually going to do it. It's more believable, and I think like. I think what she's obviously this is me talk, maybe talking out of hand, but I think what she's trying to say is just we can't assume that people are on the same page as us. Um, you have to sort of explain it properly. You have to be able to show how it's done, but not. And I guess it's like what a lot of movements are doing nowadays is trying to be a bit more neutral, being like, okay, this is how you know economically this can happen, rather than being like. You know, this is a socialist dream. But that's my interpretation. I don't know if I'm right in it, but. As, as, I start, as I keep looking at it, I kind of feel like that's the kind of angle she's going at. I don't know if you guys agree. Um, yeah, I mean, to go to your first point that you made regarding the state, um, I think that's probably particularly an issue with, you know, the Bernie movement in America, because there was so much focus on Bernie Sanders that I, I'm always averse to the kind of cult of the leader. I, I, I didn't really like how we treated Corbyn um, as almost messiah messianic like um and um i think with sanders there was just too much hope laid in to that without an acknowledgement of how power works in the us because you you can't actually you can't just work on sort of presidential decrees um you you need to hold all the houses um and you need a strong contingent of uh, quote unquote, because Americans use this term more than we do, progressives, um, uh, to have any chance of changing policy in the long term. Um, having Sanders in wouldn't have done much. And 
I think, you know, that attempt to control the state without a genuine understanding of how you have to kind of control all the different avenues and streets of power um, is is not helpful. And I don't think it was helpful there. Um, but we still, yeah, there's still a need for the, the capturing of the state. Uh, the, you want to see the state wither away. That's a, that's a, a tenant of any, you know, good-hearted socialist. But that withering away is necessitated by a preceding capturing of the state in in a strong way, um, in a way which means that you can actually reconfigure the the power levers of society and economy. Um, I suppose with the other other point, communicating effectively, I I don't know. I I, I never know whether this you know like things like defunding and abolishing mm. how how much of the general um, public that turns off at any point. Um, yeah. it's, I, I don't know if those are good hills to die on, but um, far be it for me to kind of make a, a sweeping statement on that. I just, you know, you know, like the first, the first parts of any police force that would be defunded are going to be, you know, the administrative side, who often actually record, you know, things like police abuse, um, they will be the first to go. Um, so you could actually have an adverse effect um, where um, you end up, you know, potentially increasing um, acts of discrimination or um, uh, acts of police violence. And I don't think you're ever going to have the position of abolishing the police. I suppose that's probably a good example of this oper operationalization point of like, that's a political demand that's recently been expressed. But the easy rebuttal of that is, well, how would that actually work in practice? Like, without actually saying how it would work in practice, then, you know, you've got easy ammo to, to throw at you. But, and this links, links into the point about communication. So, like, across the pond in the Corbyn movement, there were plenty of think tanks and organisations that were putting out things that explain very clearly how these policies would be operationalized and how they would work. So people do do that, but the problem is it's not communicated to everyday people in the same way that like a mass media campaign is on six o'clock news kind of thing. It's like some think tanks produce reports that, you know, fucking sick ideas that might end up like saving the world, but they'll hide them in a PDF report that gets like three views somewhere. And that's the point of communication of meeting people where they are and how you how you get certain messages and information across to people and what form that you do that best. That's so I feel like policy ideas can be operationalized to prove how you get to the vision, but then the communication of that, the strategy of that, is what needs to be improved. Hmm. Not the operationalization, just the communication of that. Yeah, she talks on like um on sort of page forty eight. It's kind of like Habermas's ideal speech situation crosses um, Reclamouth's socialist strategy, <laughs> which talks about this idea of like she talks about this idea of mutuality by Goldstein in a minute. But um, with this idea of communication and language, she kind of says on page forty-eight um, this idea of using language to bridge values. So it goes back to that idea of like not scaring off the middle ground, essentially. Um, 
but I, I guess I guess I, I get what she means from like a sort of you know that idea of I don't know if you guys have read much of um like Carol Muth but they essentially come up with this idea of the friend adversary model um as opposed to the friend enemy have you guys have come across that before I haven't no no so obviously you look at political po- politics and sort of the antagonisms that come between either Republican or parliamentarian politics is always sort of a divide between your friend and your enemy. So there's a unity built by these two opposing parties and then the antagonism between them creates that sort of middle ground, which then becomes, you know, that political vision. Obviously, then whoever's got the majority in that political system then sways it more their way, whereas that that construction though there's a, a you know a constructive productive tension within it it completely polarizes the political spectrum between an us and a them um and there's just no harm there's no way of harmonizing the two sides effectively and then when that has happened like with the third way it just you know it just kind of dilutes either project and doesn't really work out what they propose is this idea of an friend adversary model so though you might not typically agree on you know the fundamental politics let's say of a person's ideas you can sort of try and find common ground in some sort of instead of subjective relations so be it class race agenda whatever you look at something objective so that you can sort of coalesce around a more common destiny essentially so it's a bit of a difficult because the idea between that is the tension r- remains within the subjectivities or the particularities to use their language um, around an objective universalism. So one example could be the climate crisis. Um, and obviously another example could be, you know, progressive economics, if you can word it in a certain language. Um, but uh, what do you guys think about that? I'm trying to picture it. So I, I was picturing, like the Houses of Parliament is 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 architecturally structured. You've got two people fighting against each other. Let's presume one of them side is a socialist and the other side is a free market, whatever. Mm-hmm. So under the friend enemy model, the middle ground, the halfway point in between a socialist and a free market would get the middle ground is where sort of election would be won and then they form a government. Is that, have I understood that right? It's basically the way of thinking about it isn't, I've used the examples, you know, of political parties, but the essential reason why this relation comes into play is creating social unity. Um, uh, as a so you create your own social block normally in normal cases it was the working class um as opposed to the middle class in sort of marx's terms but what the clown they've tried to put forward was you know the working class as a sort of block isn't where it used to be there's the different types of um particularities and the idea is to try and find a way to unify that block to create a new, well, a, a sort of new version of a working class. Um, so it's, that's where the adversary part comes in, is that they might all have different self-interests, but there's there's a, there's a, a chain of equivalence that runs through that's able to sort of enable that unity. Um, that sounds quite similar to Claire Ainsley's um, political strategy. Uh, she's Keir Starmer's head of policy. She wrote a book 
can't remember it was published last year or a few years back, but it seems to make that similar argument. I guess it's the sort of concept of the popular front, isn't it? So trying mm. to galvanise as much as po possible in terms of the broad base, which is good, like, in initial kind of movements. Um, but, you know, historically, they do generally crumble away. Um, you don't get that kind of unity for very long, I suppose. Um, it's like playing with fire, isn't it, sometimes? Yeah, what's the, <laughs> well, in, like, pre-1904, um, no, 1905, um, in Russia, there was there was a kind of it, it was a a kind of anti-Czarist collective which had everything from um, kind of conservative liberals um, who objected to the sort of absolutism of the Tsar all the way to you know this sort of radical social democrats and the socialist revolutionaries and it tried to sort of ban because because the uh the state treated them all as the same as essentially in opposition to the Tsar's authoritarianism um it kind of created within that fabric a a equivalence between these radically different um organizations um in um where uh, at that time i think the mensheviks and bolsheviks are split up as well so there was even those you know subdivisions um but they didn't last for long um and by sort of you know 1917 um any kind of any semblance where um that that kind of liberal bringing together of all these different organizations that that had completely sort of uh, disintegrated um and i can see the benefits of having this kind of wide popular um linkages but they they will they will crumble eventually um because differences emerge at some point um and cracks appear um that's, that's history tells us that i mean i think that's why um mcleod talk about this idea of incommensurate incommensurability or, or uh, impossibility of um conditions of impossibility so, so they they frame it in a way so I think I mentioned it a few few months ago with this idea of post-foundationism that as you're approaching an ideal that the foundations of that ideal crumble as you approach it and the idea is that you're constantly sort of striving towards a reflexive ever-changing reconstructing project as you move towards it because if you so the idea is that they found in their historical analysis that when you have an ideal and you strive towards that ideal anything that is a means towards that ideal could obviously end up um, superseding the, the ideal. So for example, if you're like looking for, I'm going to create a communist state, but on the journey towards that, you could potentially, in a way of trying to liber liberate people, you might need to actually subjugate them to famines or whatever in, in, in service to that goal. Is, what it, they, is it so, similar to uh, Trotsky's uh, uh, state of permanent revolution? Similar, or? yeah, essentially. Essentially, they sort of borrowed that idea and tied it in together with sort of um, Cramsci's hegemony as well, and this idea of that that permanent revolution tied with that, that vision in a sense that can never be really can never be realised, but can always be strived towards. It's like a strive for perfection that can never be realised, um, and the idea is that it's con con it's constantly reconstructing with all the sort of different particularities that come in because as you said differences change over time and it sort of tries to um tailor itself to that and stay quite fluid um and i guess the the idea behind it is 
I don't know, like, it's not just... I think what they got stuck with is they, they saw it as a means to create a sort of unity within a, within a block um, towards gaining power. Then the issue, the, the thing that they didn't really spend too much time on was this horizons or this possibility of a horizon and what it could look like. Um, which is, you know, once you've got power, you've got the vision there that, you know, you strive towards this ideal that you can never really reach. But what, you know, what is this ideal? Um, and obviously you see it with like Podemos, Podemos as well, like it's, it's become that ideal that they strive towards becomes quite convoluted. And as you said, the difference is if there's no, you know, comprehensive look towards that future, the differences can overwhelm and create factionalism or sectorialism. Yeah. What were the other um, parts of the book? Oh, sorry, George, you had a... Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, there's one quote that I wrote out, which I thought was interesting. Um, so it's on a point about sort of the, the a growing view about the public and the distrust of the political class. We have learned that many do not believe any policy intervention can make things better for them. Distrust of the political class, and perhaps more importantly, painful experiences of interacting with the agents of the state from birth onwards can suffocate hopes of transformation through political institutions. As this deadening of hope has been employed as an active technique of austerity, the presentation of an alternative state-led machinery of poverty reduction appears implausible. After decades of being trained to expect less and less from formal institutions of government, training achieved through a combination of political rhetoric and active impoverishment, the belief in the ability of political programs to deliver something better has been broken. At the very least, perhaps we should devote some attention to the manner in which active impoverishment has been deployed as a tool to dismantle the popular belief in democracy. I think that is probably one of the most important problems that we face at the moment. It's a, it's a problem that was identified in 2009, at least, by Mark Fisher in Capitalist Realism. Those, the, the sentiment's very similar, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And especially now with this rise of, like, Q, QAnon and, like, freaking just all these, like, paedophile conspiracy theories, like David Icke-style stuff, like, that is so prevalent among people that I know back home who, like, they have had, like, rough lives and stuff, and they're, like, it's so easy for them to to disregard anyone who's involved in any of that kind of political thing as, like, an evil being that is just never going to deliver anything for you kind of thing. It's huge as well. Exactly, <laughs> and I it's bigger than the international people. left or any domestic left. <laughs> I swear. One in four UK people believe one of the conspiracy theories, apparently. One in four people in the UK believe one of the conspiracy theories. Well, there's already apparently uh, from um, when I've listened to the Zero Books podcast, uh, Derek Kwan was saying there's a handful of. QAnon affiliated um, Republican senators already um, is I don't know the degree to which they're endorsed directly or or have sort of um, sort of proclaimed their support but it's growing in America and it's kind of it's a more international than you know like the birthers movement or the truthers the truthers don't forget was actually started as a left conspiracy which then moved into the right um, uh, 
and um, or you know like uh, uh, even the Tea Party. I know the Tea Party is not exactly a conspiracy movement, but it was kind of you know it was more domestically oriented libertarian movement. But the recent one with QAnon, it it seems international more in scope than mm-hmm. anything else that's come out of America so far, which is interesting. Like radical right or not kind of right affiliated conspiracy movements um the ability for them to gain traction amongst the population but this, yeah but this could be something that we could appropriate though and like mm-hmm. hear me out on this what what as, as as she says right there right it's a consequence of having power taken away from them and socialism for me is as the fucking tony ben's quote is is an irreversible shift in the hands in power to the hands of ordinary people so what again is another communication issue it has to be around socialism if socialism is economic democracy if socialism is power distributed to people in their working life in their political lives whatever then basically this can be reconciled with a kind of distrust for political institutions so even in a kind of like Trumpian language that he uses about like calling out elites that ruin everything, the rotten, rotten political establishment, that kind of thing can gain traction with people. But the left needs to use it as well because they need to say like that, like people, people talk in those terms, we've got to meet them where they are, but also because they're kind of true, like not that they're all pedophile lizard shapeshifters or whatever. Like, they are corrupt and they are parasites in society, stealing money. And as, as it says right here, you know, it's a technique of austerity to make you poorer so they can get more money. Like, that is true. So take power off them. Take it. We will give you power. Vote for us. And we will give you power and irreversible shift of power. And this is how we will have economic democracy. You know, you want to take, you want to have control of the things. You don't like being told what to do. Then so democratic socialism is your thing, man. Like, that, because that is then... That is then you having power and not being told what to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like that. That's this is this is something that can be reconciled together, and you could use that political dis- disillusionment to to as as a as a as a means as a means to achieve socialism. In my understanding of socialism as a democratic project, a decentralized anti-authoritarian system, we can use this growing disillusionment and growing kind of like conspiratorial view of the political class discuss oh. I Brilliant. suppose brilliantly said brilliantly yeah. said <laughs> I there's there's a weird thing thing there's like a there's a problem a disconnect in out some of the kind of the way that the contemporary world works because you know I, I don't want to just keep bashing on about QAnon um, or 4chan they are a diffuse network of anonymized individuals who generate their own cultural production, which has implications for the real world. Now, we have the organized left to an extent. We have party where there's better subscription to parties in the left than there is the right. Um, and we're more openly um, vocal about our exact positions. But we don't actually, at least in my view, you can contest this point. We don't generate full, almost cultural networks in the way that these weird, you know, you know, sub subreddits for the right do, or QAnon does. Um, and they have a kind of a diffuse capacity to infiltrate 
media narratives in ways that the left seems incapable of. And I know, again, it's going back to that concept of the marketing strategy, but it's not just like marketing, it's it's how, how do you create that diffuseness, you know, that kind of that ability to be part of the full cultural paradigm and not just a talking head, um, you know. Um, There's uh, something I mentioned a while ago about that strategy of unbranded communications, which might uh, be handy there. So, like, the probably, to be honest, is what the right are doing, the alt-right anyway, with, as you said, about there's all those different platforms. They're all kind of humming the same sort of messages, but it looks like part of a diffuse kind of cultural movement. Well, there probably is just fucking Steve Bannon behind the thing, like, you know, piping messages to all these organizations, but saying, don't put a Steve Bannon logo on it, and then they'll know it's me. Do you know well, what I mean? Like, 4chan definitely isn't directed by Steve Bannon, but right. it has a certain cachet. Like, they, you know, they, they, they're, uh, like, 4chan claim, like, so many people on it claimed we memed Trump into the White House in 2016. Um, and I think there's a belief in that because they believe, but they, it's like the messaging, you know, the political side of it is just embedded in a wider thing that isn't even directly political. It's like, it's cultural. It's it's just, you know, all the jokes and the layers and the delivery and the messaging is, the, the politics is just a, a, a an aspect, an affect of that wider cultural production. And that's where I don't know whether the left uh, it's in its kind of current, almost more uh, tangible form, can embed itself in the same way. If it's cultural, and in this specific instance of like disillusionment with the political class, if that has come from austerity and just a general sort of decline in living standards from neoliberalism, and the cultural comes from the economic, mm. in this example, it does. Um, and if that, if we're you know on this inevitable tract of deeper and deeper neoliberalism then the left needs to grapple with this problem and it needs to create a strategy that then assumes okay if we're going to have continuous neoliberalism we're going to have continuous fall in living standards and what we need is and and then as a consequence of that this culture of distrust of political institutions is going to arise amongst general populations and therefore our political strategy our messaging our communications has to take in that into account and create some kind of mechanism where that can feed more votes. And and I yeah, um, as you said about where can it be embedded, you're right about that. You know, that is difficult. How do you kind of have a decentralized way of doing that? Mm-hmm. The party mechanism I, isn't enough. I, I believe no, no, the no. party is necessary for the capturing of power, but they they're like they they are two two different aspects which are interrelated and that's that's where you you can't just make people you know um generate that culture independently um uh gotta be organic yeah it's 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 very difficult because maybe we're just not Maybe we've, I don't know, lost our ability to culturally create in that way. Um, it's stuck I mean, too much in cultural critique, I think. <laughs> Maybe. Too self-aware. I was going to say, um, on that point, like, do you reckon it's because, so that, you know, the wider population, obviously, obviously, we, you know, we've been stuck with 
conservative government in austerity or neoliberalism for 40 years but do you reckon in the sort of collective cultural consciousness which like left-wing thinking is just kind of seen as this you know everyone just thinks this way it's boring it's like you know the establishment way of thinking and this alt right way of thinking there's been it seems more diffuse because it potentially is more generative because people think it who were involved in it just assume it's a massive generalization by the way but they might just assume that you know they're, they're a bit edgier this is oh this is new way thinking no one else thinks like this you know with this with a special special people and it's a bit more generative whereas you know 20 30 years before the culture on the left you had like bands and stuff you had you know there was a lot more culture being generated but now a lot of that has been you know essentially incorporated into the you know, capitalist regime culture now has been sort of commodified enough and um, in that sense doesn't really generate anything but that's that's a generalization yeah i mean i it's difficult to gauge though was it was it because it definitely in a, in a policy sense was more boring back in the 70s i think now you've got all these exciting sort of proposals for like i think it's exciting but in the 70s but, you have to remember like people's you know obviously there was digitalization and stuff like that but people's living standards were probably a bit better than what they are now until that the 80s yeah when you know thatcher came in there was 100 like 1 million unemployment i think in the 1980s and stuff that's where that you know that short-term working thing came in under the thatcher government from you know, carried on from the labor government um so in, during that time as well there was a lot more like you know think about british and american culture it was like the height those industries were hegemonic across the world and you know fast forward 40 years it's kind of like a well-trodden road road there was was a moment during the sort of peak of the corbyn era in 2017 election when it was like grime for corbyn and it was like the time where grime was like it was like the big like you know i'm not i don't fucking love grime or whatever but at that time everyone was listening to grime and you had like them talk like wearing trackies on BBC One and stuff, and being like, "Well, this is the underclass that you've created." You know, like it was a kind of class conscious for some of the artists. Like it was, it was a political sort of thing. I don't think it's necessarily like that now. Um, so there are these sort of moments where that happens. Do you think there's anything like obviously? I know they do exist like subcultures on the on the left, but do you think it's just because they're they're not as sort of presently known anymore like you look at the news and stuff and it's more you know the things that you see in the media is more you know subcultures within the far right or fascism or maybe even conservatism or republicanism republicanism i don't know if that plays in at all i don't know what you guys think again no massive generalization <laughs> well generalization generalizations are good they get us they get us, they get us riled up <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Fair enough. I mean, to bring us back to a bit more to um, the reading um, and to kind of like um, frame it a bit better. Because um, obviously, we've take, we've picked apart her bad habits. <laughs> Bless her. If she ever, ever watches this, listens to this even. Um, and we speak. We've spoken about. You know, we've hinted at certain things which you know, could be potentially new habits that the left can adopt and, you know, potentially limits. But in a succinct way, just for people that are 
listening? Can you can either of you sort of condense down, or you don't even have to condense, you can generalize, but in your opinions, what are key habits that have probably been done now or potentially new habits that you think are important for you know the left as it stands now and for socialism generally? I don't know if I framed that well. <laughs> yeah. like, if, sorry, Chad, do you want to go first? No, no, you go first, you go first. I think just if to kind of summarise my whole sort of, not even just like critique of this, just the thoughts that it has like made me have emerged from reading it is like the importance of communication. Just mm. think the importance of communicating what is your socialist vision? Why will it change your life? Why does it chime with your political disillusionment? You know, what are the key messages? How do you operationalize it? How will it change your life? Like, the importance of those kinds of messages is the only habit, not the only habit, is a key habit that will secure the achievement of socialism. Mm -hmm. um, I think they should put all of the money that the left has into meme lords uh, and set up a, a wide range of meme lords to meme us in meme away. Yeah, we'll we need to counter the memes of the right with with memes of our own um, because the EU controls the memes of production. It's a it's a yeah no I I, I can't. I, it's I didn't invent that. Don't. It's <laughs> we email George Soros and get him to fund like a meme network of like <laughs> left wing QAnon conspiracy theories about Tories being fucking. Oh, I don't know. God, they've already they've done all the most interesting conspiracies, haven't they? They've done pedos, lizards. Well, to be fair with the lizards, that was David Icke, and David Icke actually comes from the left. Um, he's yeah. you know. Um, but it's, it's just transitioned. All conspiracy is now just drifting rightward, you know. Like we used to have truthers, you know. Like I think that was a that was a pretty decent left conspiracy. Um, What's the truth? Nine eleven. Ah. Still beans. Yeah. But even if they didn't do it, you know that they kind of had they 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 had to have done something. So you might as well be a truther. Um, in this day and age, it seems quaint. Um, compared to lizard paedophiles. Um, I don't know, it's growing in fashion. We'll have to make a list of like shit we think of in the week and then we'll just like start drumming in those messages on our, on our next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining us today at the Post-Apocalyptic Social Club. We'll be back next week with another discussion. Um, should you want to stay in the loop, and be updated when we post new content then please follow or subscribe to us depending on your platform if you enjoy our content and want to support us our patreon is in the description see you next week for the next installment